Hey, happy Halloween, everybody. We have got a great program for you today. Good news for monogamy. We also have to talk about how to vote. And we'll get into the seven churches of Revelation. This is The Deep End. Welcome, welcome, welcome back again to the Deep End Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hatch, and I'm so glad that you're here with us. And we got a great show today. I'm excited especially to talk about the news, some good news for Christians, some good news for what God says about sex and sexuality. And we are also going to get into the seven churches of Revelation and do a couple of segments. We should have some fun, but I'm so glad to bring you in. And would you also welcome our team over there in the corner of toys. I call it the toy corner. All the technology. What, it, what I want you to see when you see that shot is money, 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 money. Money. <laughs> Come on. So this is the deep end. And, and we talk about Jesus. We talk about the church. We talk about Revelation uh, here on season two of the deep end. And today we got news for you. So good news, Josh Pereira. Hello, hello. On the monogamy front. Yes, uh, this is out of the Atlantic Monthly. This is a non-Christian publication and a very, in many respects, anti-Christian publication. And they have actually found out that, according to the Atlantic Monthly article, fewer sex partners means a happier marriage. Ooh. What do you have to say about that? That sounds, uh, that sounds just about right, man. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it should be it, it should be the way it should be. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Th this is sounds an amazing like anything, article. It sounds like if I had said anything else, it wouldn't have been good. Yeah, no, so. it wouldn't have been good at all. I totally set you up for failure on that yeah. question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're watching, by the way, on Facebook, let us know where you are. Uh, you can also watch us on YouTube. We have a Deep End channel over there as well. Yeah, okay, sure you so smash that subscribe button, y'all. Yes, yeah, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. So the article says this. Over at the Institute of Family uh, Institute for Family Studies, Nicholas Wolffinger, a scientist with the greatest last name in human history. Uh, Nicholas Wolffinger, a sociologist at the University of Utah, has found that Americans who have only ever slept with their spouses are most likely to report being in a very happy marriage. Meanwhile, the lowest odds of marital happiness, about 13 percentage points lower than the one partner uh, people, uh, belong to women who have had sex with six to ten sexual partners in their lives. For men, there is still a deep, uh, a, still a dip, sorry, in marital satisfaction after one partner. But the article says it is never as low as it gets for women. Uh, and so, to illustrate this, I have a graph because I, I love graphs, and you'll find out about that a little bit later. Too. <laughs> so here on the vertical axis, you can see in the graph uh, percentage of people reporting having a very happy marriage, and then on the horizontal axis of the graph. You have, starting from the left all the way to the right, one partner to all the way up to 21, 21 partners. <laughs> the, the very active people. <laughs> okay, uh, moving on. Uh, here, the article continues and says, contrary to conventional wisdom, when it comes to sex, less experience is better at least for marriage. This is Bradford Wilcox, a sociologist and senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies and an Atlantic Monthly contributor. In an earlier analysis, Wolfinger found that women with zero or one previous sex partners before marriage were also least likely to divorce, while those with 10 or more were most likely. These divorce-proof brides are an exclusive crew. By the 2010s, he writes, just 5% of new brides were virgins, which is bad news for virginity, and just 6% of their marriages dissolved. 
uh, dissolved within five years compared with 20% uh, for most people. So think about that. If you're a virgin when you get married as a young girl, you get a 6% chance <laughs> of getting divorced. But if you have a lot of sexual partners before marriage, uh, that divorce rate skyrockets. You say, Pastor Tim, why are you talking about this? Because I love when the news supports uh, Christian views. Uh, when science you know, kind of backs up what God says in his word. I mean, how many times are we going to have these articles come out and say, it looks like what God has said in his word is right. And so this is the thing that you have to understand, too. There's a lot of science behind monogamy. I don't know if you guys are aware of this over there, yeah, Josh Perry. There's a lot of science yeah. behind ha having one sexual partner for life. Um, and let's just put that graph up there again because you can see uh, that there is women is in the blue. And so they actually suffer the most from the most sexual partners in terms of happiness in their marital life. And then men... As usual, get these advantages from not a much of an advantage, but a bit of a, an advantage over mm -hmm. women concerning uh, sexual, uh, sorry, marital happiness and sexual infidelity before marriage. So, right. Science has found that there's something called uh, the cuddle hormone. Have you guys heard about this? The cuddle hormone. <laughs> the, I kid you not. The, the Some what? people call it the, it's called the cuddle hormone. <laughs> it's called oxytocin. Ooh, okay. Not oxycotton. Oxytocin. Okay, so we're not talking about getting high. We're not talking about alleviating pain. Oxytocin is a hormone produced by the pituitary gland. And it, the nicknames for it are the cuddle hormone and the bonding hormone. This is released during sex. And it bonds you. And I'm I always talk about this in the weekend messages here at Waters Church. But it yeah. bonds you, literally bonds you emotionally and spiritually with the person that you're making love to or having sex with. The cuddle, this is the cuddle hormone? It's the cuddle hormone. So okay. that's why you should cuddle if you're married. After sex. Yeah, well, all the time. You don't even have to have sex to actually release. That's the other thing. You can, you can just cuddle and it bonds you. Well, that's bad news for guys, man. I mean. Why is that bad news for guys? You just want to cuddle and release the hormone. I mean, you know. What, what are you, one of those, you know, love them and leave them? No, you, no. I'm you, wanna, I'm, I'm, aren't you a married man? <laughs> I'm a married man. I yes. thought, you know, come on. What, what I'm saying is that, that you scares know, me, Josh. Like, You're our you, worship leader over here. You just, <laughs> you just want to cuddle without, you know. Yeah, no, no. You know. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. But <laughs> <laughs> we're to blow you, my spot, man. <laughs> you, you don't need to have sex for this hormone to be released. It's actually, it's actually released when a woman nurses her, her uh, infant. Wow. And it bonds the infant to the mother, the mother to the woman, I mean, mother to the baby. And so it releases, though, during sex, and it actually causes you, this is crazy, the science is out, it causes you to trust that person. But the qualifier is only for a short period of time. Huh. So it wears out, like the trust level goes skyrocketing high after sex with that person, and then it slowly dissipates over time. Wow. It, it's all pointing to the reality that you should really just have sex with one person for the rest of your life. I mean, yeah. if you want it to go well with you, do what God says and avoid sexual immorality. Um, so there's a ton of scientific discovery on this, because this is a very recent discovery in science. It's a very recent discovery in health. Uh, basically, the articles out there all say the same thing. Oxytocin, oxytocin hormone, creates monogamy. Uh, it, its benefits for the human well-being are astounding. And you have to understand that as Christians, we should want it to go well for all humanity. Whether they're Christians or not, we want people to do, thing, do life a certain way because that way will lead to happiness. We don't want to control people, but we want to encourage people to do things that are well for, better for them. So the benefits of oxytocin, astounding. This is, this is a couple uh, recent studies. They actually found out it helps with uh, 
healing your injuries. So your body has, of course, white blood cells that go in and heal your injuries and all that kind of stuff. They have found that oxytocin is one of the leading hormones to stimulate white blood cell healing in the body. So married couples, if some of, someone gets a cut, you know, you can reach for the Bactine and the Band-Aid or you could go to the bed. I think you can make that decision about which one you want to go to. Um, it also counteracts the stress hormone called cortisol. So it is actually the arch enemy of cortisol and other anxiety causing hormones. It reduces cravings for sweets. Check that out. Hmm. That's incredible. Oxytocin reduces your craving for sweets, especially on a day like today, Halloween. You might want to make love to your spouse. Uh, <laughs> It helps alleviate, <laughs> helps alleviate obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, erectile dysfunction, and infertility. So all the problems that our culture right now is wrestling with, and you probably see these like uh, during the football game, the commercials, the endless parade of commercials for erectile dysfunction. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. And it's like, you know, we keep looking to all these medical advancements and all these you know, man-made substances, you know, synthetic substances to make ourselves feel better when all, all along God has programmed our bodies to operate sexually a certain way and emotionally and relationally a certain way. And if we do that, we're the ones that benefit. So I, I just love bringing up news like this. That's why, that's why I talk about things like this because these kind of things are um, just, they back up over and over again that what God has said in his word, though Mankind throughout the ages has tried to reject it over and over again. God proves that what he put down in his word is for your good. It helps you and it heals you. Do what he says. Do what he says. Now, if you are also one of those people, and I'm sure there are many that are watching and you're like, man, it's too late for me. I already had a lot of sexual partners before marriage. Okay. Well, you know what? There's called, there's something called forgiveness and there's something called in the scripture, in the Christian tradition, regeneration, which is the process by which the Holy Spirit makes you into a new person. So when you come to Christ, your old life is gone. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that if anyone is in Christ, his all the old is gone, and everything has become new. That includes you, your body, your hormones, your hormones, your brain, all that stuff. That's the good news of the gospel. So if you're one of those people that said, man, my life before marriage was a mess, a sexual mess, a infidelity mess, I get it. Well, start now. Start now in Christ, believing that he is in the process through the Holy Spirit working in you uh, to make you into a new person. Amen. That would be my advice. So that brings me to a new segment here on the deep end, and it brings me to a question that I often get as a pastor, not anymore as an adult pastor, but when I was a youth pastor, I got this question all the time. We're going to do a segment called, Can I Do That? Can I do that? Testing the limits of Christian liberty. So when I was a youth pastor, and I was a youth pastor for six years, six grueling years, I was a youth pastor. I got this question a lot. Uh, can I have sex with my girlfriend if we are in love? The Bible doesn't say not to have sex before marriage. It just talks about adultery or sex outside of marriage once you're married. Okay, wrong. <laughs> the premise of the question is wrong on a couple of counts. Number one, uh, stop seeing the Bible as a rule book. And this is so important for American Christians because we like to see the Bible as like it's our manual, how to live the good life, how to get the goodies from God. And if I do these things, then God will give me these things. And that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is not a manual to make your life happy. Okay, If you follow God's commands as one of God's people, it will make you happy. But it is not a set of rules. In fact, the Bible doesn't even get to rules 
for the most part until uh, the 20th chapter of the second book. So you got to read through uh, 50 chapters in Genesis and 20 chapters in Exodus before you even get to any rules. And those rules are for the people of Israel, not for all nations. Now, I think that the Ten Commandments, they come through the cross and they're for God's people universally. But they're not for all people everywhere. I mean, if you're not a Christian, uh, honoring the Sabbath is not a rule for you. It is really not. I mean, it's is it good for you? I believe it is good for you because I believe that being a Christian is good for you because I believe that knowing God through the Lord Jesus Christ is good for you. But the Bible does not set itself up as a rule book. Stop treating it like that. In fact, those 50 chapters in Genesis are a lot of bad stories, like a lot of stories with uh, adultery, infidelity, polygamy, rape, incest, all kinds of problems. I mean, all kinds of nasty things happen in, in the in the story of the Bible before you get to one rule and then... All those stories show us that when you break those rules and you do those things that they did in Genesis, you know, in those in the Genesis chapters, the life does not go well for you. It actually ends up pretty poorly for you. And so that that's why the rules come later, because God first shows you, here's what happens when you don't follow my commandments as my people, because it will be you will struggle. You will hurt yourself. Uh, So that's my first advice. Stop treating the Bible as a rule book. A lot of people do that. Secondly, fornication. Is any sexual any sexual activity outside of marriage, and the the standard for sexual activity is not from uh, the book of Exodus. It's not even from the book of Matthew. It's not even from the book of First uh, Corinthians, which talks a lot about sexual immorality. It actually is from the second chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, before sin enters the world. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And there is no such thing, friends, as casual sex. There is no such thing. We just talked about the oxytocin hormone. It's a crazy hormone. It can actually hurt you if you use it outside of monogamous marriage and sexual fidelity. And so you have to remember there's no such thing as casual sex. Sex is an emotional thing. Sex is a very powerful thing. And it has the power to help you or tremendously hurt you. Uh, And so that's why fornication, the word in the Bible for sex, any sex outside of marriage, is off limits. And then you have to realize, too, that while there might not be a specific law or 10th commandment, one of the 10 commandments does not literally say, hey, don't have sex before marriage. You have to see that the point of view from the ancient world was once two people had sex, they were married. That was the consummation of the marital agreement. And you didn't touch each other until that sexual moment. Once you had the sex, the sexual moment, then you were married. Uh, this is why when Leah is snuck into the tent with Jacob, she is his wife. They have sex. He consummates the marriage. That, uh, according to the ancient traditions and customs uh, of the ancient world, they were married. And then... Um, what happens beyond that, sexual morality beyond that, is prostitute sex. That's all over the Old Testament, unfortunately. Uh, and so there was two kinds of sex in the scriptures, in the ancient customs, prostitute sex, consummation sex. Josh Pereira, you came up with two great words yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> sex for consummation or compensation. Yeah. 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 And that's the ancient worldview of those two kinds of sex. But anyway, that's why you don't see like there's no verse that says thou shalt not have sex before marriage because that's not how they saw sex. Anyway, this all brings me to a very important thing that's coming up in America, which is just six days from today is November 6th, 2018. And that is voting day. And I encourage you to vote. I encourage you. Now, this is a midterm election, and historically speaking, midterm elections do not have the same turnout as general elections or presidential elections. But all um, 
uh, predictors are that this one's going to be a big turnout uh, voting day. And I think it's very important for Christians to vote. I think it's very important for Christians to voice their opinions in the public sphere. This idea that we Christians have got to go and cordon ourselves off from the big, bad, scary world and not say anything because we don't want anybody to not like us is ridiculous. We have a mandate uh, from our Savior, Jesus, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, a lot of that absolutely is loving your neighbor as yourself, doing good for the poor, feeding the hungry, uh, in supernatural works, healing the sick, and all that kind of thing, and, of course, preaching the gospel, most importantly. But voting is something that Christians should do. Think about it this way, Christians. If you don't vote, the pagans will vote. And you don't want the pagan choice to be the rulers over you. Okay, so you need to go vote. And I don't tell you who to vote for, as you're going to see in this next segment. But I do want to tell you what to vote for in Massachusetts, uh, or at least encourage you. Encourage. I don't want to tell you. You don't have to. But I think there's a good case to be made for this vote that's coming up on November 6th. And that leads us to this next segment. The church has left the building. Okay, well, I'm joined in the studio today by Michael King from Massachusetts Family Institute. Uh, Michael, welcome to the Deep End Podcast. Awesome. Thanks for thanks for the invite. It's great to be here. Glad to have you. So for everybody watching, everybody listening, uh, would you just tell us who you are and what is Mass Family Institute? Yeah, so as you said, I'm Michael King from Massachusetts Family Institute. We are the local associate in Massachusetts for Focus on the Family. Uh, we have national partners like Alliance Defending Freedom. Many of you in your audience might have heard of ADF, who's been in the Supreme Court, representing people like Jack Phillips, the baker from Colorado. Colorado. Uh, but our focus in Massachusetts is pr- pretty much to preserve, protect, strengthen the family, uh, life, liberty, marriage. Uh, we've also been concerned about some things regarding marijuana as well, as, mm-hmm. you, as you know, in the state. Um, but uh, yeah, anything regarding life, liberty, and marriage. All right. So one thing I one thing I one thing I want to get on the table right away is uh, should Christians be involved in things like ballot questions mm-hmm. and politics, and should we even be talking about that as Christians? And I say an emphatic yes, um, especially when it comes to things like what are our laws going to be? Yeah. I'm not here to tell you who to vote for, I, and I don't do that. And if you want to know who to vote for, and I you want me to, you want to ask me privately, go ahead. I'll be glad to ask. Mm-hmm. I'd be glad to answer that. But this forum, I don't use to tell you which candidate is better. But when it comes to matters of law, what's mm. going to be enshrined yeah. in the legislature of Amer- of our state, and how does it affect us? I have no problem speaking to this. Mm. Christians are part of the citizenry, and mm. we should speak up when something like this comes Yeah, about. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it was Martin Luther King that said that the uh, church has a prophetic mandate to define what is good yes. uh, and what is evil in a society, mm. uh, because lest we become just another social club, and the church was never meant to be a social club, but yeah. to really help define these things, to really be the conscience of the state and not the slave. That's right. That's a good word. Um, vote no on three. Yes. Ballot initiative to repeal the bathroom and locker room law in mm. Massachusetts. This is November 6th coming up. I encourage all Christians to vote. No matter what your political uh, view is, please vote. It's your civic duty and it's your civic right and mm. opportunity, actually. Yeah. No on three. Basically, the easiest way that uh, you can think about this, uh, if you're voting no, is no on three means no men in women's public accommodations, such as bathrooms, showers, 
women's shelters, uh, locker rooms, those things. So I think that's the easiest way to think about this. And look, in, in America, you can identify however you want to identify, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes, as you said, to our laws, mm-hmm. then then that's that's you know stepping over that line, mm-hmm. right? So you know how do we want to define things in our society? S- so important as gender, right? Um, and we'll talk maybe a little later about how our law currently defines gender as a sincerely held belief system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here, really, our concern on knowing three, it's it's really three things. So we're concerned about the privacy and safety especially of women uh, when it comes to their public spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Especially our daughters when it comes to, um, you know, public bathrooms, okay? Or even showers at your local gym. Uh, also, uh, we're concerned about just the slippery slope that this law does allow for sex offenders to enter a public accommodation like a bathroom uh, because, uh, look, there were 36 amendments that were offered on this bill in 2016 uh, all 36 were not accepted. Right. And, and number nine was to uh, keep sex offenders out of the public accommodation. So we, in many ways, say this law just goes too far. Too far. Now, we're not talking about uh, blatant, uh, I guess you would say reinstituting, if there ever was, uh, blatant discrimination about what bathroom a transgender person can use had they had the sexual reassignment right. surgery done. We're not talking about that. That's right. Uh, even as Christians who may disagree morally with that choice, right. we can support the right of those who have gone through with the surgery to use whatever bathroom they, right. the words you used, anatomically Anatomically present. present. The, 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 really to us, this is not about people that identify as transgender, okay, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. It really to us is, again, about privacy and safety, mm. right? So uh, look, if, if, if someone has gone to the extent of having surgery, uh, and um, really, you know, has really gone through that process, well, then however you anatomically present, just like, um, well, however you anatomically present, you should go, you can go into that particular bathroom. Right? Right. I don't think anybody in society is necessarily going to have an issue with that. Right. Right. It's the slippery slope that, you know, that you can, I mean, it's a, our law says it's a, it's a sincerely, held, sincerely belief. held belief. So if one day you identify as a man and you're a woman a biological woman or vice versa and you want to go into that other bathroom especially if you're a man identifying as a woman and you go into the woman's restroom or the woman's shower well that's where we are more concerned yes and and those kind of things this law as it is currently constituted allows for that depending on how you feel you identify you can then use whatever accommodations yeah, in public spaces. Exactly. And, like. and and there and before 2016, so viewers need to know that um, before 2016, this was not a law. This became law in 2016, okay? So um, there weren't these punitive measures that you could be fined up to $50,000. You could be sent to jail for up to a year. For doing what? For discrimination, okay. right? So even if uh, my daughter, for example, I have a 10-year-old daughter, okay? She's in the bathroom uh, at a department store, right? And a man goes in there, you know, and and uh, I don't know if he's I don't I don't know what he is, right? I mean, is is he a man? Just he looks he, like a man. He looks like a man. Yeah. And so if I go in that bathroom and I say, even by saying maybe even sir, right? Am I am I discriminating? I think the law, to a certain extent, tells that man that goes in there says, look, you can look all day, but you just can't touch. Is mm-hmm. really how the law presents itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I mean, c- common sense as a dad. Uh, and as my daughter, she's going to be 
very concerned about a man walking into that restroom. I mean, it's going to be an invasion of her privacy mm-hmm. uh, at the very least. Um, and I shouldn't have to be worried about coming under punitive uh, penalties and fines for discrimination. Yeah. Um, you were talking, too, with me earlier about the school systems yeah. and the curriculums that have kind of been uh, co-opted by this very progressive, yeah. very sexually you know, explicit yeah. uh, segment of our society. Yeah. Uh, speak to that a little bit. Like some of the assignments that teens are getting in their public school systems yeah. that teach and kind of reinforce this idea of gender as a spectrum, gender as an identity, right. and it's about a feeling rather yeah. than a biological assignment. Yeah, there's, there's three assignments that we're very concerned about. Um, and your viewers might be surprised to know that uh, one of those curriculum starts in preschool. It's called the gender unicorn and has five different spectrums for a preschooler to choose from. And the spectrums range from male to female and masculine to feminine. Now, what preschooler really truly understands what it means to be masculine, right. what it means to be feminine. And then if you were to go open up a Facebook account today, you could choose from right. 71 different genders. Yeah. Right, So all these different areas, how you can identify, we can see how kids now are 10 times more likely to identify as transgender as adults are because they're facing these curriculums. The other one is called the gender-bred person. It's taught in our uh, elementary school, middle schools. This teaches our kids that your gender comes from your brain and has nothing to do with your anatomy. So we are completely separating sex from gender. Right. Oh, sorry, yeah, sex from gender. Yeah. When your anatomy has a lot to do with your gender. Yeah. And then we have the high school curriculum uh, that has five different spectrums. And at the top of the curriculum, it says um, your identity, your gender identity is not set in stone. Right. Uh, it can change from day to day. You, you gave us a picture of that assignment yeah. on the screen now. And you yeah. can see there it says, how do you feel today, or what does it say at the end there, may not be how you feel tomorrow. That's right. And so it really does come down to educating, quote-unquote educating, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. there's no scientific basis for this stuff. That's uh, right. And I want to point out, too, sorry, the, the gender presentation, how the world sees you. I always say the example of when I was in uh, eighth grade, um, I was going through puberty, right? And my voice hadn't changed. Mm. Um, and so I was singing in the soprano section. I had all these girls around me, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, <laughs> you know, but how does the world see me? Right. The world might see me as not fully masculine. And if I have 71 different choices... You can see how sometimes our kids are even coming home now and saying, Mom and Dad, you're out of touch yeah. when it comes to your, you know, how can there only be just two genders? Right. So the Christian response, always very important to me as a pastor, because yeah. I, we're not, as Christians, um, supposed to expect the state to be Christian. Yeah. I'm a big proponent of separation of church and state. That was actually founded in this country by a man named Roger Williams hmm. down the street down here in hmm. Providence, Rhode Island, uh, meaning that the church should not be uh, dictating uh, or the state should not be dictating church principles upon all the people because yeah. not everybody believes. Right. Freedom of religion, so right. on and so forth. So, but as a Christian, our response to these issues are, is so imperative, so mm. important. So as Mass Family Institute works to um, get the vote uh, no on number three, yeah. we're not sitting here trying to demonize the other side, right. and we're not trying to, um, re- I guess you would say, reinstigate yeah. some form of discrimination against people who may dif- disagree with us. Right. Yeah, because people need to know, look, we're, I always say this, we're not against anybody. We just don't like the fact that now there are these punitive measures of $50,000 fines and one year in jail for concerned dads that are concerned about their daughter who might be in a restroom where a man goes in there. And it seems to me like it's the reverse 
uh, action on behalf of the the pro transgendered community yeah. against the church. That's right. For either perceived or really experienced. That's right. Harm and bullying from those who may have disagreed with them in That's the past. Right. It's it's gone from one extreme, gone from one to, extreme the to the other. other, and and people need to understand there is Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination called MCAD that protects the rights of people that identify as transgender. And there's already precedent that people that have uh, right. identify as transgender even winning cases yeah. uh, in Massachusetts. So. This idea that we're not trying rights... to make them a second-class citizen. Exactly, that's right. <laughs> um, so one of the things that we talked about too, in in I, I had actually read a couple of months ago from a very progressive in this matter yeah. uh, mom. Uh, I think she was in California. She was at Disneyland, and she was in a public restroom in Disneyland yeah. with a bunch of women, and then a man walks in. Mm-hmm. Uh, uses the restroom as a man, looks like a man, mm-hmm. dresses like a man, yeah. uses the woman's restroom. She's in the restroom with a bunch of other women, and then the man walks out. She mm-hmm. blogs about this. I forget where the blog is. Maybe we can find and put it up in the bottom third here. Mm-hmm. But she blogs about it, and she even as a pro-transgendered mm-hmm. person, not yeah. herself transgender, but pro-transgender yeah. rights person, said... That's alarming to me yeah. that no one said anything That's right. when the man walks in. That's right. And I had said this to you earlier, was the, this is my concern as a pastor, is that mm. what we see is the um, deconstruction of social protocols mm. that yeah. are in place for a reason, for yeah. protection, for a sense of security. That's right. And when we can have men now walking into women's bathrooms without, without um, any kind of... Uh, uh, you know, consequence, mm-hmm. that's not a good place to be. And I think that's what Christians have got to be aware of. I, they're mostly aware of this already. Mm. They, I think they need to see how um, advanced and aggressive mm-hmm. it's become, especially in a state like Massachusetts. We all know uh, this is where gay marriage got its start that's in this right. country. Yeah. Um, and, and now this is kind of becoming a, a harbinger for potentially for the rest of the country. Yeah. Uh, what do you think for the voters out there, what are the chances on this being voted the way that you know concerned Christians yeah, and citizens yeah. want it to well, go? Well, look, I mean, as I told you, I've been so encouraged going all over the state um, and having these kinds of opportunities, um, talking to to many people. And look, when we make this a discrimination issue, uh, we probably lose it, yeah, right. But when we make it a public accommodations, bathrooms, shelters, showers, dressing rooms, uh, people that are on the conservative side or liberal side. Uh, they all, many, most of them seem to get it, right? I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day in Greater Boston. She informally polled 150 people across demographic lines, religious lines. She said when she explained that no meant no men in women's bathrooms, 90% of who she talked to said they were voting no. So to me, that's encouraging, right? Mm-hmm. Because like we said, this law just goes too far. Yes. It's, it's misinformation. It is. In many respects. Yeah. And this is what I, I'd kind of like to conclude our segment here with is, it is so important, Christians, that you be aware of what these ballot questions mean. Mm. Uh, you need to be aware of what these laws uh, uh, provide and do. And you, as a tax-paying citizen, mm. have every right, as a Christian, to speak up and vote mm-hmm. according to the way you believe the uh, the uh, state should operate. This is mm-hmm. your state just as much as it is a non-believer state. So this idea of withdrawing from politics, withdrawing from uh, voting and leaving the state to be the state is nonsense. You are a member of the state and you pay their salaries, That's our government right. leader's salaries. Yeah. So vote. Again, I don't tell you who to vote for or put in office. That's not my job as a pastor. But when it comes to something like this, where there are safety and concerns uh, for families and children, um, I would be, I am definitely... Uh, 
more than willing to advocate for this particular vote. Awesome. So, vote no on three. Hope it goes the way we want to. But if not, we will love our neighbor regardless. That's right. That's right. Because we are Christ followers before Amen. we are anything else. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Hey, you're it was welcome. Great to have you. Yeah, it's great being here. Appreciate right. it. Take care. You too. And that's the church has left the building. So something like that. Obviously, you know, I am sure there's going to be people who watch this and they think, oh, why do people, why do Christians worry about this stuff? This has nothing to do with Christians. And maybe you think that. Maybe why why are you worrying about this stuff, Pastor? This is ridiculous stuff. It's the world. It's not Christians. Okay, listen. I mentioned in the video, and it's a very important point. It's a salient point. There's something called social protocol. Social protocol is the are those normative rules that we abide by that keep decency in an order and actually alleviate a lot of fear, a lot of questions. Okay, you have something called uh, this idea that look um, when you when you start to promote this idea that gender doesn't matter, social protocol rules come crashing down. Men in the bathrooms of women, women in the bathrooms of men. And it, you know what? I, I hear all the explanations. Well, that's rare. and Don't take it outlier example. But you know what? It's still about social protocol. Okay? Yeah. For instance, I got another thing. It's from, the deep end, it's, it's from Deep End News. Another news item. This is why I worry about this stuff. As, as an American, okay? Uh, regardless of my Christianity. Uh, in Denver, this was uh, back two, uh, two weeks ago, Adams County School System, a middle school in Denver, Denver invited a drag queen to come in and speak to eighth, sixth to eighth graders about bullying. A drag queen. <laughs> now, nothing against drag queens. If you're not a Christian and you want to be a drag queen, go for it. I'm not here can, to can you, like, boss you around. But this is a real thing that happened in a real middle school in America. And again, it speaks to the collapse of social protocol. What, Josh? Dressing in drag doesn't necessarily mean you're gay, right? No, it doesn't. Not at all. So like a straight man can just dress in drag? Well, I'm not really down with the drag queen protocols out there. You know, <laughs> haven't. It's been a long time since I've tried out anything from yeah. the women's department. Summer's in P-Town. Like man. never. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, right. So the, the thing is, is that this is happening all over the place. And these news items come and go constantly. And so what happens? What happens in, in the Adams County Middle School in Denver, Colorado, when this drag queen comes in to speak to sixth to eighth graders about bullying? The parents go crazy and they email the administrator. And guess what they guess what they do? The response is, we're sorry. But it's not we're sorry because we had a drag queen come in and speak to your kids. It's we didn't tell you about it beforehand. What? Yes. In other uh, words, we're going to do it, but next time we do it, we're going to tell you about it beforehand. And now that's that's another social protocol that comes crashing down. As a parent, I don't want the school system doing stuff like this without me knowing it. I don't want them doing it, period. Dude, and and let's just think about that. Like, where, where are we going as a society when the best we could come up with with, uh, let's address sixth to eighth grade bullying issues Let's bring in a drag queen. I mean, is this a serious problem for sixth to eighth graders in public school systems? Are there a lot of sixth grade drag queens out there that go to school dressed in drag and they I'll, get bullied? I'll, you know what? I will tell you this. Uh, in my short stint of walk, uh, working in, uh, in the field of social work, yeah, there's definitely different demographics of uh, maybe more urbanized. Sure. Areas. And I'll tell you what, man, the sixth to eighth graders in those um, different areas. Yeah, but this isn't, that wasn't, that's not no, the I case. Mean, we're talking about Colorado. This is like, it's Colorado. Is anything Rockies, goes out there. Dude, you know, but like, you know, I'm saying sixth to eighth grade is like, in, I'm sure when you were in sixth to eighth grade, when I was in sixth to eighth grade, I mean, it was a totally different ball game. Whereas now you have kids that are like, I mean, they're, they're right. having yeah. sex in sixth Point, grade, man. Points uh, conceded, but yeah. still, 
when you're talking about bullying, let's talk about things that are relevant. Yeah. To sixth to eighth graders. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, nobody. There's definitely better places, better <laughs> people in to LA. bring in. Maybe they're dressing in dragon LA in sixth grade. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> Social protocols coming crash. Not good. Not good for you and for your future. And I say, listen, we, we want to reach drag queens as Christians. We want to love them into Jesus. We want to love them into the faith. Absolutely. But there are things that are going to be. Um, they're going to have an effect. They're going to have an effect on the social standards of our culture. And I care about it because I am not just a Christian. I'm an American. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get into the book of Revelation. Okay, we are back into the book. We took a week off last week. We won't do that many time, uh, many times in the future, but we did last week. So this week, we're going to talk about the seven churches of Revelation and how we should read them. We're not going to get very far into this. Uh, we will talk about what they needed to hear from God next week. But in the book of Revelation, first chapter starts off with John sees Jesus. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is awesome. He is fear-inspiring. Fear in a good word, reverent fear, uh, in the good sense. And he falls at his feet, and he just hears Jesus uh, speak to him. Jesus lays his hand on him, says, "Okay, listen, I need you to write down what you see and hear for my people." And what you have to realize is Jesus has a message for his church in every age. And the Book of Revelation, I, I like to call it like I like to think about the Book of Revelation like this. It is God's word to every generation of the church from the time of Jesus's ascension to the time of Jesus's return. And it is how it is an, an instruction uh, guide, if you will, on how to see your world as a Christian. Remember, we talked about this in week one, that revelation is about what is most real. Uh, what we see on the news and what we see in uh, our with our eyes is real, but revelation is saying there are forces behind what you see that are more real, and you need to be aware of that. So when the when we turn the page from Revelation chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we get to the seven letters to the seven churches that Jesus tells John to write to. Now, this is an interesting thing about Revelation. It's got seven letters to seven different churches. Uh, most of the New Testament books are written, most of the New, Test New Testament books are a letter written to one church. Uh, by Paul the Apostle, or John the Apostle, uh, or James, uh, or Peter. But in this case, John is writing on behalf of Jesus Christ himself, uh, giving seven different churches seven different messages. And so the question often comes up with this is, how do we read these letters? You may not be aware of this, and this is why I love doing the deep end, because we can dig a little deeper. We wouldn't do this in a weekend uh, experience at our church, but when we do the deep end, we can dig a little deeper. So how should we read these letters? Because this has been a big debate in church history. So, of course, the obvious one is, let's read it for what it is. It is seven individual messages to seven first century churches, period. Like, that's the easiest way to take it. And some people think, okay, let's leave it there. These, were for th these messages were for those churches and those churches only. Um, of course, we can't leave it there because we read the book of Galatians, which was written to a first century church, and we take principles out of Galatians for us today. We read the book of Philippians, which was written to a first century church, and we want to also take those messages and apply them to ourselves today. So 
The idea that it was just for them and them only, that kind of fails on the merits of how to do proper interpretation in the Bible. But what it also says in the book itself is that each of the messages to each of the seven churches was intended to be shared with the rest of the churches. So all the churches were supposed to hear the message for all the other churches. So the, book, the church in Ephesus was supposed to hear the church, church messages to the uh, church, the message to the church in Pergamum or Sardis or Smyrna or Thyatira. And so this actually kind of opens our eyes to the fact that what God says in his word to one group of people, he wants other people to listen in on that. This is why we study the Bible for what it is. And I've said this again and again in this podcast. It's very important that you catch this. The Bible is not written to you. The Bible is written for you. The Bible is not written to you. God is not directly writing to your condition and your situation. The Bible is written for you. It was written to other people, other groups in other generations, but you should listen in and draw from what God says to those people for yourself. And so nowhere is this more clearly illustrated than in the book of Revelation and the seven churches letters. Um, so the question is, why the order? Why, why does Ephesus come first and then Smyrna and then Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis. Well, there's a lot of uh, speculation about that. Um, l- let me let me do something real quick as we as we. I want to show you something that's really cool. I found this out, uh, and we're going to do a segment here, the whiteboard segment. Let's go there. The whiteboard. The whiteboard. <laughs> so, up here on the whiteboard, we have the map of Asia Minor. And this is what actually you see in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. Remember we said this, that John is on the Isle of Patmos. He is exiled for his faith, his, his testimony of Jesus' resurrection. And this was a place where they put political prisoners and people who were a problem for the state. And he says his letter, first Ephesus, and what you have to see, this is actually very simple. This is why the order of the letters is in this order, because... This route from Ephesus to Smyrna to Bergamus to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia, then also to Laodicea, it actually was an ancient Roman postal route. It's really that simple. So <laughs> the reason why Ephesus is first is because Ephesus is closest to the Isle of Patmos where John is located. And so he sends it to Ephesus and then he sends basically the messages in order of the churches of the postal route. It really could be that simple that God says, hey, listen, this is the easiest way to get it to the most churches, the fastest possible way and let's send it along the poster route so it's not always as crazy or as complicated as we like to make it sometimes the bible is actually quite simple and relevant to the age in which it lives and so that brings me to a couple of other options that people have taken regarding how to read the seven churches letters some people have taken it to mean that it refers to the eras of church history the eras of church history. So there's people who believe this, and still to this day, they are called dispensationalists. Uh, dispensational view believes that God has acted in certain dispensations or ages with humanity. So you have the dispensation of innocence with Adam and Eve in the garden, then the dispensation of conscience from Adam to Noah, and the dispensation of civil government from Noah to Abraham, and so on and so forth. Several dispensations or ages. Well, they take the seven churches that way. So let's just take a look at it. Ephesus is the church of the first century. A lot of people think like that. 
That's what Ephesus represents, the church that's lost its first love, so to speak. Uh, Smyrna is the church of the second and third century. This was a church that, this was the age of great persecution upon the church uh, from the Roman emperors Nero to Domitian Domitian and beyond uh, and Julian the apostate and so on and so forth. These uh, historical emperors of the Roman Empire that really persecuted Christians, burned them at the stake, fed them to lions, so on and so forth. Pergamos, the church from 300 to 500 AD. Uh, Some people see it that way. Thyatira, the church of the dark ages all the way up to the 1500s. Sardis, the church of the Renaissance and Reformation. That would be the 1500s, 1600s. And then Philadelphia, the missionary church of the 1800s and 1900s. And then Laodicea, which would be the end time church of the apostasy, which if you believe this view of the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, you always end up here. Like this is where you end up at the end. And every Right now, we are in the age of apostasy, and that's not very encouraging for our age. Now, the problem with this view is that you can't really say that the whole church of Jesus is lump-summed into this one kind of church. Like, we can't say that. There's always been a church in, in every age, that is very missional. They want to go out and share the gospel with as many people as possible. There's always been a church that is a bit compromised in every age. There's always been a church, like the church in Thyatira, uh, there's always been a church that's a bit apathetic, a bit overconfident, like the church in Laodicea. So these eras of church history, this kind of fails, and it also fails on this, that if these are letters to the ages of the church, then I guess we... If you're living in the 300s and you're the church in Pergamos, you can basically ignore the messages to the church in Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It doesn't make any sense. So anyway, I don't agree with that view. Uh, I'm just telling you what that view is just so you have uh, some reference about it. Maybe you never learned about dispensationalism. uh, And if you didn't, you probably should be glad that you didn't learn about it anyway. But anyway, (laughs) moving forward. Option number three is... That there are type that these are types of churches for all times. I kind of like this view. This view is that at every generation there are going to be Ephesus churches, which is Jesus' message to them is work hard. I mean, you're working hard for God, but you got no love. You lost your first love. Uh, there's Smyrna churches, which is you're suffering and you're being tested and and God has allowed this to happen to you, and he's got really no corrections for you like he has for the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. So why not? No corrections, because it's hard enough to suffer and be tested. God doesn't want to come down on you for some other things that he needed to fix. Really, he's just encouraging the church of Smyrna. Then Pergamos. Uh, there are always going to be churches like Pergamos, which are infected with immor- immor- uh, immorality. And then there's churches like Thyatira, and the message to them was, that they were not just infected with immorality, they were tolerating it, they were teaching it, they were actually promoting it in the church, sexual immorality. And then the church in Sardis, which is this good reputation, but they're dead spiritually church, and you can read about that, Jesus speaks to them, and a Philadelphian church, which is depleted strength, they're just worn out. But Jesus' message to them is, you have an open door, even if you can't see it, and then Laodicea, overconfident, overconfident, apathetic, and they just feel like they don't need anything. They're good. We're, we're, we're perfectly fine. We're rich. We have all that we need. And Jesus is like, no, you're destitute. You're naked. You're poor. You, don't see you just don't see the spiritual condition of your life. You're only looking at the physical reality of your existence. My point is, at every generation, in every point of church history, there have been these kinds of churches in existence. 
And so we can't lump sum every age into one particular kind of church. I think that this is a disservice to, um, for instance, the Reformation age, which the Reformation age, uh, let's go back here real quick, would be the uh, Church of Sardis. And the Church of Sardis is good reputation, but dead spiritually. There's no way you can call the church during the Reformation dead spiritually. These guys were dying for their faith. They were being burned at the stake by other church leaders for uh, bringing the, the Bible to the, to the masses. Uh, I think about Hugh Latimer and uh, Nicholas Ridley in England. These guys were burned at the stake by church officials. Why? Because they wanted to bring the gospel, bring the message of Jesus to the common language. They wanted to translate the Bible from Latin into English, and they were burned at the stake for that. You can't call that a dead spiritual church. Anyway, I kind of get fired up about this. <laughs> you can see what I'm saying. Here's, a, here's an option I'd like you to consider, though. I think, about, I think about it like this. There are seasons of your personal Christian life, and sometimes you're in one of the, I think at all times, you're at one of these points. Sometimes you're that Ephesus Christian, which means you're working hard for Jesus, but you got no love. And you need to awaken, awaken that intimacy with the Lord or Smyrna, where you're just going through some serious stuff. And maybe you're there right now personally and just struggling. And you're wondering, what well, Jesus has a word for you. It's encouragement. It's stand strong. It's don't give up. You will conquer if you stay strong. Or you're in the Pergamos season, which is, man, you just allowed some compromise into your life. Maybe that's you. I don't know. Thyatira, you're not, just, you're not just allowing it. Now you're kind of promoting it in your life. And there's a lot of Christians that are like that. And they fall into these really bad moral seasons, immoral seasons of their life. And it's not good. And, and so you might find yourself there. Well, Jesus has a word for you. Uh, Sardis, you might be a Christian with a really strong reputation. But inside, there's deadness. There's no spiritual life. Or Philadelphia, you're just worn out. You're just dead spiritually, like you're just tired, and yet God's word to you is, wait, I got an open door. There's more opportunities for you. Just look up. Watch what I'm going to do in your life in spite of that. And then maybe you're a Laodicean Christian. I just think about it that way. I don't know. What do you think about that, Josh? I think it's interesting that none of those churches are like without some type of an imperfection. Except there are, they're probably all, there's only two churches that don't get corrected by Jesus. Oh, okay. The church in Smyrna and Philadelphia. But the rest of them, they are corrected. The other two, Smyrna and Philadelphia, which don't get a direct contra, uh, correction, you might say their correction is don't give up. Like their yeah. encouragement not to give up in, yeah. the, in the face of suffering and testing. I think it's a really interesting uh, kind of perception to think about it as uh, a part of a journey in the life of a Christian. Because, I mean, I know... You know, you, you could probably be in multiple of these seasons at once even. I think so. And, and that's how I think we should read it because it's written for you. And yeah. so where, when you get to that Ephesus season or when you get to that Sardis season, you know, what, Jesus has something to say to you. So anyway, closing up, wrapping this up real quickly, uh, three big ideas and then, and then we're done. So three big ideas <laughs> about the interpretation of these seven churches is, number one, Jesus is a friend to flawed Christians and churches. Mm. That's good news. So the, the good news for you is whether you are in that compromised state, that Laodicean state, that Smyrna state, that Pergamon state, wherever you are, Jesus wants to say something to you. So may, may, maybe you feel like, man, I have really blown it. I am immoral. I, there is something going on in my life. I, I can't even tell anybody. Is that bad? I don't know whatever it is. Secret addiction, secret struggle, whatever. 
No, friend. Jesus has not given up on you. He wants to speak to you. Listen to what he has to say. And that's actually a very good thing to hear uh, if you're in a bad place. The answer to sin has always been Jesus. So if you are in sin, the answer is still Jesus. The answer is not run away because Jesus has had it with you. No, he is the answer to sin. He is not the, he is not the condemnation for sin. Um, but he's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of flawed Christians. He's a friend of flawed churches. And I think about the New Testament writings. The New Testament is, again, a collection of letters written to flawed churches. The book of Corinthians, the first and second Corinthians, a flawed church, a church filled with sectarianism and division and sexual morality and greed and uh, injustice. Well, Jesus actually wants to talk to them. That's why we have the book of 1 Corinthians or the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians, which is written to Christians who are apathetic and lazy. And it's like Jesus is trying to reach out to them. He wants to talk to his flawed people. He doesn't want to give up on it. Or the church in Colossae, which we just did in fake news here at Waters Church. This is a church that was falling into mysticism and pagan practices. And so Jesus has a word for them. The good news is this that you, no matter where you are in your walk with Jesus, Jesus wants to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Isn't that good? That's great. I think that's good. So my point two here is that if you ever find a perfect church, don't go. You'll mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Like we always want to find, oh, I want a perfect church. I want to find that church. It's just right. If you ever find one like that, avoid it because your imperfection will add imperfection to that perfect church. That's funny. As many times I've heard that, I still laugh every time. It is a funny thing, yeah. but it's true. Like, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect church, and Jesus loves his imperfect church into perfection, into maturity. The other thing I want you to notice about these churches is that they're completely different. They're opposites of each other. Like, for instance, um, in Ephesus, Jesus says this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? Uh, there's good evidence that these people were uh, a sect of Christians in the first century that were encouraging Christians to uh, um, uh, engage in moral practices against sexual morality and other religious practices apart from the Christian faith. And so he says, look, you hate that, and I hate that too, and I'm so glad about that for you, Ephesus. But then look what he says to Pergamum. To Pergamum, he says, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So right there... In the first century, you have a church that's totally against the Nicolaitans, like Jesus is, and then you have another church that is totally for the Nicolaitans. And the point that I don't want you to miss is Jesus is speaking to both churches, which I just think that is so glorious. That is so hopeful because we live in a culture, we live in an age in which, especially in America, we love to demonize Christians that are not like us. We love to demonize churches that are not like us. We especially love to do this in the denomination game. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like you who come from the, bath- the Catholic background, right? Catholic, yeah. yeah. And so there are Catholics out there that think we Protestants are going straight to hell. Oh, yeah. All right. I'm sorry. I will see you in heaven, Catholic brothers and sisters. Sorry to disappoint you. Right? <laughs> but there are Protestants that say Catholics are going straight to hell. I mean, look, we've got to chill out. We've got to chill out. Yeah. The Lord does not call us to say, you're in, you're out. The Lord calls us to share the love of Jesus. All right? So I know it's not, uh, it doesn't come naturally mm. to think that Jesus could love churches that are totally different than you. 
but he can <laughs> and he does and he does. And so we got to stop playing this game of we are the real church and those poor churches over there, those poor suckers, shame on them. I see this online all the time where, and maybe you've seen this, Josh, where a notable Christian pastor, and I don't like to name names of notable Christian pastors ever, <clears throat> but they will like preach a whole message against another notable Christian pastor. That's so stupid. And to me, I just like that grates me. That rubs me. Uh, that's just against, against the grain of my of my skin. I can't stand when I hear Christian ministers. Um, I guess it's like just let me show my congregation that I'm smarter than that guy. Yeah. Uh, if, if anything, shouldn't you be defending? You shouldn't be defending. you be like covering them up? Man? Yeah. Like, you may not agree about everything. Like you may not agree about, I don't know, spiritual gifts. You may not agree about um, forms of worship. What kinds of songs to sing? What what version of the Bible to read from? For heaven's sake. You know, sakes. I'll, dro- I'll drop one if you don't mind. Yeah. Like Joel Osteen, man. Yes, that, Joel Osteen. That guy gets such a bad rap. And like there's people that I know that he reaches that don't that wouldn't be reached by exactly. other people and it's just like aggravating. And there are guys and I know two notable guys and I, I used to listen to these guys and watch them because I love I love listening to good preaching. Yeah. And they would literally take time out of their message to demonize Joel Osteen. And they have like clips of him preaching yeah. in their best. I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you attacking? First off, most of the people in your church probably don't even know who he is. <laughs> and, and even if they did, they probably just think, oh, Christian minister. And if they that do, nice? it's like he's doing something right, man. Stay in your lane. This you is know? a problem for us preachers, though. We always think that everybody's a threat. Everybody's a threat to our <laughs> sheep. It's our sheep. They're our sheep. And oh, don't come after my sheep. They're not my sheep. They're not. You, the people of Water Church, you are not my sheep. You are Jesus's sheep. Amen. And 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 frankly, I don't want to be your main shepherd because <laughs> I can't do everything <laughs> for you that Jesus can do. I am here to shepherd you to the great shepherd, but I am not. Ultimately, I don't own you. <laughs> I, I care for the flock of Jesus. Anyway, so and and that speaks to a bunch of other issues like people coming and going, going from my church to another church, or from another church to my church. And we, we, pastors, they get so worked up about this. They're not yours. If people leave my church and go to another church and they're happier in that church, so long as they're not trying to avoid dealing with something that they should be repenting of. Mm. Like if they're leaving our church because they are wanting, they want to sleep around with their. They're, you know, with uh, someone that's not their spouse and they don't want to be corrected. So they go to another church. Well, then I have a problem. Oh, yeah. All right. Then then you've got a serious problem. But if you just want to find another, well, this is better for our kids at this point. I mean, I'm not a big fan of that. I think you should support one church, but I'm not going to sit here and make a big issue of it. You're going to go to another church. So be it. Yeah. Um, hopefully you come to our church, whatever. I, you know, I am not here to say that our church is the best church. Jesus loves all kinds of churches. I would say this. Here's here's some advice. What to look for in a church. So if you make the fatal mistake of moving away from Waters Church, (laughs) (laughs) what should you look for? I got four things. Okay, so number one, I think you should look for a church that opens the Bible and preaches it. Right? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. If they're not opening the Bible, you you know, if they're never referencing the scriptures, go, run away. Yeah. Okay. The word of God is the truth. Uh, what, and then you want to look for a church that declares Jesus is the only way to the Father. Amen. Like If they're telling you that, no, it doesn't matter if you're a Muslim, Hindu, or, or Jew, or atheist, you're all going to get to heaven, run. Yeah, that's run like right. crazy. They're not teaching the truth. I'm sorry. They're not teaching the truth. <clears throat> Jesus says, uh, many follow the path of destruction. Many. And he says, few find the door to life, which is him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Je- Christians didn't say that. Jesus said that. 
So go to a church that does that. Number three, go to a church that works hard to bring more people to Christ and, and bring them in. Like work, go to a church that loves new people. Yeah. Because if they don't love new people, I'll tell you, they're just an insider crowd mentality and they're intolerable. Don't you hate that being Can't a part stand of a it. church where they're just so It's got to be about people, people outside of God. Walls, gotta, it's got to be about people far from God. And then I, I would say this, number four, go to a church with uh, healthy small groups, mm. uh, encouraging people to get into smaller knit communities and building one another up and loving one another. That's in Acts chapter two, by the, by the way. Right in Acts chapter two, after the Holy Spirit falls, it says that they go to the temple for big gathering worship, and then they met together and ate together in each other's homes. Big gathering worship experience, small groups. That's why... We do what we do. Mm-hmm. And it's right there in the first page of the church's history in Acts chapter 2. Number two idea about these seven churches is this. Jesus has something to say to your situation and your life. So, again, if you're in that compromised state, don't give up. Jesus wants to speak to you. If you're in that place where you've just been really, you know you're doing what you shouldn't be doing, and you've been doing it for a long time, and you've almost become accustomed to doing it. Look, Jesus has something to say to you. He spoke to the church in Thyatira. He says that there's a prophetess named Jezebel in Thyatira, which, by the way, there is no greater disdainful comment or nickname to call anybody in all of human history than Jezebel, <laughs> according Jezebel. to the scripture. And Jesus says, there's a, there's a woman in there. Her name is Jezebel. Now, her name wasn't literally Jezebel, but he associates her with that wicked queen from the Old Testament. She said, you got to shut this woman up. She's teaching people to commit sexual immorality. And I think about this. Yet Jesus speaks to that church. Like that, to me, that is really cool. All right. Number three, uh, Jesus speaks to the body of believers. Okay, he doesn't speak to you necessarily individually. And a lot of Christians fall into this trap. It's just me and Jesus. It's just me and my Bible. You know, just me and my podcasts and my Hillsong worship. Going on a date with Jesus. You know, I mean, look, that's not the Christian message. That's not the Christian mantra. That's not how it unpacks throughout the entire uh, Old Testament and New Testament record. Every every redemptive movement in history is a group of people. Even Abraham has a family, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, you go into the New Testament, the 12 apostles, the churches, the people that spread out. Jesus sent them out two by two. It's never just you and Jesus. Don't do maverick Christianity. It is life-sucking. It is not life-giving. You need to be in a body of believers where Jesus speaks to those believers and he talks to the whole body of Christ. And so get into a church and hear God speak to you in your situation and you will be glad you did. Anyway, that's this edition of The Deep End. I hope you enjoyed it. Josh Pereira, why don't you tell us about connecting Ooh, to right. The Deep End Podcast? There's a lot of ways to connect. A ton of ways to connect. Obviously, our Facebook. Make sure you check out The Deep End, uh, our page there. And uh, YouTube, of course, uh, we still don't have enough subscribers for a custom URL, but the link is in the pinned comment on Facebook. Make sure you go over to the YouTube channel, subscribe, like, comment. Facebook.com slash The Deep End TV. Yep. yep. YouTube.com. YouTube.com slash uh, Waters Church. A lot of big, yeah. yeah. But then you got to go <laughs> yeah. to Waters Church. Yeah. YouTube.com slash Waters Church. Make it easy on yourself, everybody. Go to the deep end.tv. There you go. There deep you end.tv. I hope you uh, enjoyed it. We will see you next week for the deep end. <laughs>